Thank you, ladies. And may we all have the sweet joy of singing about growing up into Christ. Amen? It's nice to be with you this morning. We're beginning a special series that will last all this week and culminate next week at the Sabbath services. You matter, you belong, you are loved. And this morning, before we actually begin there, I'd like to take your bulletin out, if you would. And I want to look at it because it has kind of a daunting task in front of us. The back of the bulletin, please. And I just want to encourage you, if I can. I mentioned in our business meeting that uh, for those who aren't oriented, we had a business meeting last Sunday, about three and a half hours long. Had a good chance to talk about a lot of things relative to potential for our school to have its own, uh, its own outdoor setting with a curriculum built more around creation and nature, sacred history, and the purpose of living, which is to discover your duty and destiny as a Christian young person. And in that business meeting, I mentioned something that makes this graph look a little out of place. I mentioned that uh, it was the current thought of the joint church and school boards that we could reach about two-thirds or three-quarters of this goal with monies we had on hand. And that's not there. And there's a reason it's not there, and that is because we need to have another meeting and determine how much of that money should be kept in reserve for some other kind of potential need. But I want to tell you about the money that's there. At the end of the uh, business meeting, I had one of the younger-to-be members. You know, there were, there were some younger-to-be members in the audience. As a matter of fact, a second grader came up to me at the end of that. And uh, she handed me this tithe envelope, wrote her name across the top there, but the left hand shouldn't let the right hand know what it's doing. But since it wasn't my left hand or right hand that wrote that, I'm going to let you know what's going on. I'm holding in my hands... Uh, the first offering that was made to the land acquisition, I have four quarters, a dime, two nickels, and a penny. So if you look at the number on the screen, you can figure out where the $1.21 came from, a second grader. Can you say amen? amen? So I'll hang on to this tithe envelope probably as long as I live. Might be some, I'll, I'll give the money. Haven't done that yet. And then on Monday, my administrative assistant said, you know, you have a certified letter waiting for you. I'm thinking to myself, certified letter. I said to her, this will be really good or really bad. And uh, I had meetings. I've been very busy. And on Tuesday, coming back from Lansing, I called her up to see if the postman had dropped off another uh, note to come pick this letter up. And uh, she said, no, but I looked the original note over, and if you sign it over, I can go pick it up for you. And I said, well, I'm just now getting off the bypass, and what time does the post office close? And she said, 4.30. I said, well, I'm going to go down there right now and get my certified letter. And uh, I stood in line, waited my turn, stepped up to the postman and said, uh, I have a certified letter. He said, could I see your ID? I got it out. He said, is the address on the letter the same as this address. I said, no, this letter made it to the church, and of course that's my home address. He said, well, if the name is the right, the same, I'll be able to give it to you. I took the letter from his hand with this green uh, bar across the top, and I started out across the street to where my car was parked, and as I looked at the letter, I thought, hmm, that's weird. The return address was the sending address. 
So 635 St. Joseph Avenue is the address of this church. And it was the address in the corner. Now, I didn't send a certified letter to myself. And I thought, this is going to be anonymous. And I've never gotten a good anonymous letter until this one. I thought maybe I should throw it in the garbage and not even open it. There was a period of my ministry where I got several anonymous letters in a short period of time. By the way, anonymous letters are worth less than zero most of the time. But I decided to rip it open. When I did, I pulled out an anonymous letter. But it's the best anonymous letter I've ever gotten. Because inside was a check for $2,000. A thousand of it was to go to Pastor Larry and the Lebanon School Project at his discretion. And a thousand was to go to the church, uh, the new property for the school. And I thought it was a very nice letter written in there. Person doesn't appear to live around here. But news travels fast in Adventism, huh? And uh, that's where your first $1,000, $1.21 comes from. And I want to encourage you, the same God who's put us on a track will provide for us on the way. Now, I want to say one more thing. Um, what God is doing for us right now is a journey of discovery. And we are not... Uh, nothing about our intentions to redesign a curriculum and relocate our school, etc. None of that is a protest to anything uh, that's going on. We're just following God's leading. And I want to make sure everybody understands this. We're moving as we understand the Holy Spirit is leading us. And if you were able to be at the Saturday Night Vespers on April 3, where I spent approximately an hour telling the story, or at the business meeting where I did it again, I think most were quite convinced that God Himself is saying it's time to look at what you're doing and make sure things are working the way I wanted them to work. So I encourage you to keep praying. I encourage you to give. We're still going to need to raise probably seventy-five plus thousand dollars to make it to our goal. That's my guess. I announced two-thirds to three-quarters of it we had on hand, and that we do but it's still going to leave us with something more to do. The journey will be a faith builder. It will be good for us, and it will be good for our children, including our second graders with their $1.21 offerings. Let's pray. Lord, we've come into your house where we want to receive the blessings that a kind and good Father gives. We know also, Lord, that you want to be blessed and since you've given your life for us, you're asking us to give our life to you again today as a living sacrifice. I'm praying, Lord, that you would do that for us and that we would find joy being a child, a son or a daughter of God. So now please bless us as we make this journey. May our hearts be submissive to your presence, your spirit. You're speaking to us individually, even though we've gathered as a group. In Jesus' name I pray this. Amen. Two nights ago, after eating my supper, I decided I was going to go for a walk. And uh, Martin Luther said that his best sermon preparation was on his knees. Now, you need to know that this Sabbath marks the 500th anniversary 
of the day between when Martin Luther was told before the Diet of Worms to recant, and he said, give me more time, give me more time. 500 years ago on this Sabbath, Martin Luther was thinking about what the next day would hold. And on the morrow will mark the 500th anniversary when Martin Luther, compelled by a love for Jesus and convicted by the power of his word, stood before the Diet of Worms and said, my conscience is bound by the word of God. To go against conscience is neither safe nor prudent. Therefore, I cannot and I will not recant. And the world has never been the same. But I'm here to tell you for the last four years, from the time between Martin Luther's first coming out and Martin Luther's showdown with the authority of the age, many have questioned the power of the Protestant church to shape or reshape the culture. Now this sermon is not the same as the first sermon. That sermon is one that you might want to listen to yet today. But there is a moment in everyone's history when they have to decide once to every man and nation comes that moment to decide. And this morning, I want you to understand you've come to a place of worship understood by its congregants to be an hour of divine worship, the divine worship hour. And whether it is divine or whether it is otherwise will be up to the prayers that preceded this moment and up to the condition of your heart. Martin Luther found his best sermon time in prayer. Maybe it wasn't all on his knees. I find the same to be true, but often I'm walking and praying and thinking, and I have my phone in my hand and I am talking into it. I had made it about three quarters of a mile from my house when I could look down the road on Jones Road and I saw something in the road. It was a weasel looking like animal. I was about 500 feet away and I thought to myself, is it dead or is it alive? It didn't move much, but it did move a little. That was maybe more troubling to me than the first of the two categories because if it's alive, hopefully it can wander off. If it's dead, the trauma is over. But if it's still alive and wounded, the trauma may become mine because I find it hard to pass by something that's suffering without suffering with it. I came closer and closer to the animal. I had my Rottweiler dog with me put her on the leash. As I got nearer and nearer, I could see the long scaly tail and the halfway wet gray hair, the white snout. It was a rather large opossum. Fortunately, the opossum was alive and fortunately it was not wounded. The problem was it appeared that the opossum had just woken up and he climbed down out of some tree, crossed the water-filled ditch and was a bit incoherent. I was hoping, since he was in the middle of the road, that my approach would motivate him such to move out of the middle of the road, but no such thing happened. He was not playing dead like possums do. He just wasn't fully conscious and alive. And so I began looking around for something to poke the animal with. 
I walked a little farther down the street and found a five-foot log with a two-inch diameter that had enough stiffness in it to potentially do the job. As I came to the possum, I thought I'll nudge it. Did nothing. I thought, well, I'm going to start to slide it along. Not only did the possum not want to move, but it took its claws and dug them into the pavement. All the while, I'm thinking to myself, this possum does not know that in its current stupor, it is likely to have permanent unconsciousness unless I help it. I stood there trying to hold my dog back with one hand and move the possum off the road with the other, all the while him taking his long, white, pointy snout, opening his mouth and looking back at me like I was his worst enemy. Some of you may have come to this service in just such a state as that marsupial. You've chosen an identity. You've established a persona. You don't know you're sitting in the middle of the road. And that unbeknownst to your current purview, danger is around the corner. And of course, for some, the danger doesn't show up right away. Sometimes it's a generation removed. When I came back on my walk, he must have come sufficiently alive, for he was nowhere around to be seen. And I was thankful that the Lord had spared me the trauma of seeing an unnecessary wound on the face of his creation. This morning, everyone in this room needs to ask themselves, how do you define yourself? How does the world define you? And does anybody else desire or have a right to define you? In visiting with some of our guest speakers, even last night, as we had broke bread together, before we started this journey, and by the way, the spirit and the tone of this journey is to bring to a sin-sick, sin-diseased world the same message Jesus brought, which John says in John 1, verse 14, is Jesus came full of what, friends? Grace. Some of you think he came full of truth first. The Bible says it a certain way for a very certain reason. He came full of grace so that you could see the truth. And if you don't understand that, or you've come here today having been mistreated, maybe even properly engaged, but unappreciating it, I want you to understand that Jesus desires to define you, and so does your arch enemy, Lucifer. So the question is, who has rights? Who holds the patent? Who has the trademark? Jesus says, Genesis 1.27, so God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, in one short verse, three times, it says, he created, he created, he created. What I want you to understand is that when David could write in Psalm 139, you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Your works are wonderful, and I know that full well. All throughout the creation story and the story of salvation, every single person with spiritual awareness recognizes the authorship, the ownership, and the great glory of this amazing thing He's done to make beings in His image. But there's one more reason. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's not just that He created you. It's not just that He had intentions higher than the highest human thought could reach. It's the fact that He has paid the price to save you from your own wrongly chosen natural identity. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I'll begin with verse 15. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you have one of the most immoral stories told in the Bible. It is someone who under the false auspices of New Testament grace is living an ancestral relationship with a mother or stepmother. They're rejoicing in the largeness of their heart to welcome him into their fellowship. And Paul says, what's wrong with you? Don't you understand how to relate to someone who's close to you, who gets this far off the mark? I've made a decision about them in my absence. Why can't you make a decision about them being present? And it's not a decision of rejecting the person, but it is a decision of rejecting their soul-destroying choices. In 1 Corinthians 6, he continues dealing with poor decision-making that involves not letting the church work things out, but putting them out to judges. But he comes back to the dynamics of human sexuality in verse 15, and he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now, this terminology will show up in other places. I mean, Jesus is the head, and whether you're a hand or a foot or a mouth or an elbow, I don't know where you are in the body of Christ. But it's very clear in Paul's mind, you have been joined to Jesus in a powerful, powerful way, stronger than the original bond between Adam and Eve. Don't you know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute, verse 16, is one body with her. And he says, the two shall become one flesh, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. And Paul, kind of writing not so much between the lines, says, you've got something going on that won't work. Your new identity is in Christ. And that somehow his identity is supposed to be in you, and you're combining things that will not only wound your person, but it wounds everything about your walk with Christ, and it creates a spiritual impossibility that Christ would be joined to that. Verse 18, flee immorality. Hard to do these days. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own Body. Now let's think about that for just a minute. I did talk about this in the first sermon, and I need to talk about it with all of you. Jesus was out uh, plucking grain with his disciples, and they were eating it on the Sabbath. And Jesus had interactions with the mob, the Pharisees felt, the prostitutes and the sinners and the tax collectors. And 
And Jesus had to tell him, don't you know that what you eat does not defile the body? It's eliminated. So I want to know what Paul's talking about here because there are two appetites in life. One is for food and one is for physical intimacy. Both of them were conquered on our behalf in Jesus Christ. And if he lives in us, we can be conquerors too. Amen? But when it comes to immorality, that appetite is different than eating. While eating matters, every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. There must be something more than human physiology because sin is not so much about the rearrangement of cells, although it can affect those things. But he's talking about something a lot more than just the corpus, just, just the, this amazing combination of bones and muscles and nerves. Every other sin a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man or woman sins against his own body. Explain that, Pastor Paul. I will, verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Hmm, so what does he mean? Are we the living temple? A little more like John Harvey Kellogg thought of it? Or are we the living temple like God dwells in our minds and sits on the throne of our person? Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit in whom who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own, you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. What is it about this whole dynamic of sexuality is so powerful is that it has the ability to warp the mind to be bonded with the right things or the wrong things, either damnation or the divine. There's something about this dynamic of sexuality inside the committed love of a man and a wife that creates the closest expression of divine love you will ever find. And if that gets twisted by unfettered, uncontrolled desires, you will not only twist and warp the witness of God, you will twist and warp yourself around desires you cannot get free of unless Jesus sits on the throne. Now listen, Everything that is said over the next eight days is designed to be said in such a way that it is full of grace and truth. It is designed so that any person with a modicum of self-awareness and honesty could say, if they had the slightest inclination that there was a God, that maybe this ought to be heard. It's designed to make sure they know they are loved, they are wanted, and they belong. It is not designed to beat and bash and bruise. It is designed to draw to the heart of God. But this morning, I will set the tenor for how that works, and everybody will get to decide. So take your Bibles and go to the longest dialogue between God and man recorded in the Scriptures, John chapter 4. John chapter 4. You've heard this sermon or ones you think like it before, but it won't be quite like this one. John chapter 4. You matter, you love, you belong. I've entitled this message, The Closet and the Prophet Coming Out and Coming Home. John chapter 4. The Woman at the Well. Therefore, verse 1, 
When the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and he went away again to Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a city of Samaria named Sychar, near that parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Now we know from the end of the story he was left alone. And the whole purpose of this chapter in the Bible is to say to one ostracized, rejected, outcast of a woman, you're loved, you matter, and you belong. Jesus got to the well before she got there and made a trip every other Jew didn't want to make, but Jesus was there seeking her, and today, friends, he's seeking every person, heterosexual or homosexual, that's dealing with a mind that's out of control and maybe behaviors too. Jesus is seeking us in the sullied state of sexual impurity. And he's coming to us also, if you didn't listen to the first sermon, listen to it. He's coming to us also seeking to deal with love from a pure heart, a conscience that is clean, and a faith that can be seen. 1 Timothy 1.5. That's the purpose of the commandment. And there's a whole host of other sins listed there in Corinthians chapter 6. So church... We got a little owning up to do. We haven't really been who we should have been, but that's not this sermon. That was the one before. Jesus was there, and he was seeking this woman. What if he was seeking you the same way? What if he had placed people and circumstances in such a way that this kind of encounter was designed exactly for you? Not by him because he's in heaven, but by one of his children. Now, you need to understand that Jews, according to some, thought Samaritans were pretty bad people. And you say, so pastor, what's new? I already knew that. And you may have heard before that they thought Samaritan women were the bottom of the bottom, unclean from the cradle to the grave, from the womb to the grave. They thought they were so unclean that they wouldn't want to walk a Samaritan road where an uncouth Samaritan woman might have spit on the ground and they would walk on her spit. I mean, the chasm is so wide, she thinks she knows what Jesus thinks about her, and she is categorically wrong. There are people listening to this today, or will listen to it in the future, and they think they know what God thinks about them, and they don't. So often we project our feelings onto other people. She doesn't know what Jesus thinks. Now I want to talk about this woman. The first thing I want to ask you is, who do you think told this story? How did it get written down? <laughs> and couldn't she have edited it a little bit? And maybe she did just a little bit. Maybe there was more to the story than what's written in John chapter 4, but I want you to understand something. The woman was cheap and easy. She was not a woman of worth because women of worth don't go giving themselves away like this woman gave herself away. And there's a reason. It's like that woman that sat in my office in my lifetime. I think married just as many times, and there was a reason. Molested in the seventh or eighth grade and never could feel quite the same about herself. Which meant she could never command the respect in a relationship that was needed for it to be permanent and enduring. 
And there are people caught up in this whole scenario, whether they're LGBTQI or whether they're heterosexual, and, and there are parts about them that they believe they came from the beginning with, and they want to know why people are so down on them when they have no ability to have shaped those elemental components of how they feel about themselves or what they desire. And I want to say to every Christian listening to me who has not had that experience, we ought to be and better be the most humble, beautiful people on the face of the planet or we don't even make it to first base. It's the love of God that leads people to repentance. Now, for those that would want to sentimentalize who God is and what love is, this story is going to address those issues. But I want you to understand something. This lady was so rejected, it wasn't just man number one, two, three, four, five. It was soon to be man number six. It wasn't just the women in the community. It was everybody. Even the kids knew she was cheap and easy and not a person of worth. There was a reason. When I can read billboards as I'm coming across the Southwest that talk about the percent of people in our world, in our country that have been molested, we all better stop and be a little bit more careful about how we project onto people. We better be a little more cautious about what we say and how and when we say it. And we all better be a little more careful about our kids and whether or not they're being vicariously sexualized by their devices, seeing things that if they happened in person would be considered child abuse, but because they're happening on a screen, we don't think it's quite as bad. Think about it. When Ellen White writes about the concern for sleepovers a hundred years ago, Tell me why what she writes today doesn't make more sense. Do you know who your kids are with? And do you understand the dynamic of child-on-child molestation? And why is it that we think we're so much smarter than the inspired sources that have guided us to this point in time? We don't need to be paranoid, but we sure better do a little more thinking and a little more reading because ignorance is costing us an awful lot. All of the rejection this lady had. She lived with it. Not very well, but she did. Now the conversation. The woman came to the well. Jesus was there first. And he said, would you give me a drink? His disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered, and he said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Dripping perhaps with sarcasm, she replied, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well's deep. And where are you going to get that water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of himself and his sons and his cattle. I want you to know right from the very beginning, the conversation says to the lady, you're not unclean to me. And the beauty of Jesus' person and the love of God that flowed out from him allowed him to be untainted. Now, I want to talk to you about the order of this conversation. Jesus first asked for a drink. He then tells her he could give her living water, but to go get her husband. 
They argue about where to worship. Jesus doesn't argue. He just states the truth. But he's not backing up. And then he says, after she says, I know the Messiah is coming. I'm him. He says, I'm him. Now, for all of you Christians who desire to be true to God, remember how Jesus came. He came full of grace and truth. And I want you to hear how the conversation goes if you do it the wrong way. I want you to ask yourself, how far would he have gotten if he said, I'm the Messiah, you've lived with six people, the one you're living with now is not your husband, and I'd like a drink. But some people appear to have no more social sense, no more grace, and no more humility than the diplomas you can get out of a track Cracker Jack box. Oh, that's pretty convenient. And you know, the enemies of true grace and true love accuse Christians of othering. You create a group that you're a little uncomfortable with, and you castigate and condemn from a distance. And I wish I could say that nobody I know others people. What the proponents of a non-biblically morally defined society like to do is they like to say, you people don't understand compassion at all. You like to condemn. And this is a prime illustration of you doing it. What Christians are going to have to do is they're going to have to be like Jesus. They're going to have to go out of their way. They're going to have to pay the price of being potentially misunderstood. They're going to have to show that they don't hold the, the expected prejudices and wrong ways of thinking and they're going to have to patiently work their way through relationships in such a way to say, you can trust me, but I will love, and I will love you, but I will also tell you the truth so you can make some decisions. There's no mention of children in this story. But do you really think after five marriages there are none? And if there are, what kind of life are they living? And then the next question is, does Jesus have a right to talk with her? Well, of course, he's God. So maybe what we need to ask is, would anybody else in Jesus' stead have a right to talk with her? Now listen to us. If nobody can talk to you about anything, Pastor, this isn't anything. I know. If nobody can talk with you about delicate things, or personal things, you are in a very dangerous place because like that possum, you may not know that the devil has no real desire to give you liberty, only to give you a mirage of liberty on the front side so that you can be beholden by your own cords of desire. The modern world calls that addiction. The New Testament calls it besetting sin. There's nothing worse than being a slave to your own mind and your own habits and your own desires. Because while you can get rid of cheese out of your diet, it's kind of hard to get rid of a brain and all of the entrenched furrows of thinking. But take hope, friends. The story says it's so. Does anybody have a right to talk with you? We have places now, even some institutions of learning, where they're afraid that real Christians are not operating in the community. At some level, they have a right to be afraid. 
at another level, they have no right to keep the individuals who have become sequestered by modern societal gospel activity, that's secular gospel activity, and it's not true gospel activity. Everyone needs a cause, and it just happens that at the moment in time we're in, some people's cause is to make sure that nobody ever hears the truth or gets a chance to make a decision. And they caricature Christianity, and they set up a straw man of false Christianity, but some people listening to me here today have made the caricature more true than I would like, and the straw man more alive than I would like. Do we do the conversations in reverse? I'm the Messiah, you've had six people, and I'd like a drink. Or do we know how to practice the method of Christ and see as Christ sees? And if we don't see as Christ sees, we'll never get to the moment of transformation that Christ gets to. But if we could be prayerful and patient, if we could be committed and kind, if we could get there first, and destroy the caricatures and the straw men, we would be able to make more of a difference. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 33. We looked at this a few weeks ago. We're going to look at it again. Ezekiel, chapter 33. Does anybody have a right to talk? And of course, it's not just to talk. Does anybody ever earn the right to suggest an alternative course? You see, this prophet is about to bring her history out of the closet without her permission, which is a great societal sin, perhaps not quite as much then as now. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 1, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the sons of your people and say to them, if I bring a sword upon the land and the people of the land, take one man from among them and make him their watchman. And he sees the sword coming upon the land and he blows on the trumpet and warns the people. And he who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning and a sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet. He did not take warning. His blood will be on himself. But had he taken warning, he would have delivered his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet and the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes a person from them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from the watchman's hand. If you're a parent, you're a watchman. If you're a teacher, you're a watchman. If you're a preacher, you're a watchman. If you're a friend, or a brother, or a sister, you're a watchman. Our society has peculiarly positioned the church at this moment in such a disadvantageous way that the sin we're guilty of now is the sin of Abel with Cain. Abel had done nothing wrong except that the purity of his life and the trueness of his actions cast a shadow. It was a shadow of guilt on the life of his brother who had gone the wrong way and wanted nobody to talk about it. And Abel, like many others who followed, paid for it with his life. And his only grievance was the wrong act of doing the right thing in the presence of someone he cared about. 
We are living in an age where we are told from generational studies that this generation is particularly averse to shame and guilt. Listen, friends, I've never known one that wasn't, and this one in John 4 wasn't either. But I'm here to tell you something. If you are a parent or a teacher or a pastor or a friend or a relative or the next closest thing about somebody who actually has lived a little longer, cares and knows, and you stand aside while they walk on by to the road of self-destruction with the bridge of love out and the bridge of sinning against their own mind and body blown to pieces, you are held responsible by the living God in the day of judgment. Now, Christ's method is so completely inconvenient and so completely misunderstood sometimes that the modern world, especially, I wish you'd listen to the first sermon, the modern world with the eviscerated witness of the modern Protestant church who's decided to identify with the world and abandon the idea that living above the world with the love of Christ could actually draw the world We're living at a very disadvantaged time, but nobody who's ever said they've been in a relationship where love is the defining operative gets off the hook. Does Jesus have a right to talk with her? Yes. Does anybody else have a right to talk about these things? Not only is the answer yes, but Jesus will go so far to say, if you cause someone to stumble, It'd be better if a millstone was hung around your neck. Now, let me ask you parents something. Is the parent who does like David did with some of his kids and just just stays out of the way so they can do what they want, are they guilty of sins of omission, things they didn't do but they should have, yes or no? Oh, you're pretty uncertain. (laughs) So if my kid's a little liar and a little thief and I don't do something about it, do I share in his guilt when he ends up in the penitentiary someday? You bet I do. We tend to think of Matthew chapter 18 and the millstone moment as someone who just actively invades the life of a child and does something dirty and dastardly and dark. And certainly that's all included. But I want to tell you something. This laissez-faire, neglectful, apathetic, standoff, never confront kind of parenting is written about in the book. And some of us have dealt with kids who've had those kind of parents and they're a terror. And even young adults and little kids don't like to be around kids that we call spoiled. Does Jesus have a responsibility to talk with her? Absolutely. Does anyone else? Depends on their relationship. Do you? Will depend on how you define the relationship, but you will be before the judgment bar of God in regards to all that. But when someone connects with you and is willing to address the most sensitive elements of your life, if they haven't done the, I'm the Messiah, you're an immoral person and I'd like a drink, if they've done the, I care about you, and they've shown themselves to be a loving and lovable Christian, you have a decision to make. Are they there in self-righteous condemnation as Cain projected onto Abel? Or are they there in self-sacrificing love, believing that the wounds of a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses? Those whom I love, Jesus said, I rebuke 
So be earnest and repent. If you're not disciplined, Paul writes in Hebrews 12, 8, then you're like the illegitimate child. And if you read some of the older versions, the word illegitimate is replaced with a much uglier word. So what's the cost of talking? Well, everybody wants to belong. And what I find is that actually most people are pretty cowardly. They don't love like they think they do. They're worried they're going to get raided. You know, F by the neighbor's kids' parents. D minus by their own kids. I find that most people actually don't love like Leviticus 19 says. Let's go there, could we? Let's go there. It's my new favorite text. Leviticus 19. Looking at verse... 16, actually verse 17. You shall not hate your fellow man in your heart. Well, how's that going to work? You may surely reprove your neighbor. There it is. We get two sentences, two, two phrases in. Speak frankly with your neighbor, but you shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. Well, how are we going to keep that from happening? Go back to 17. Reprove your neighbor, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's the context. We don't read it like that. I find that most people do the relational math and they say, if I say something, and they're worried they're going to say it all wrong. How about worrying about not loving them the right way? If I say the wrong thing, then I'm going to lose. They might not talk to me. And I want you to know, sometimes Jesus did lose. When he told that rich young ruler, if you want to follow me, if you love me like you say you love me, go and sell everything you have and come be with me. The Bible says Jesus loved him. He didn't love Jesus like he said he did. He went away sorrowful and Jesus lost. And when we come to a couple chapters later in the Gospel of John, Jesus talks to them about eating his flesh and drinking his blood and they got it. And the Bible says they went away in mass and Jesus looked to his friends and he said, are you going to leave me too? You think Jesus didn't pay the price? He paid the price. And thank God for Peter. We rag on Peter so much, but I'm telling you, he was right there. He spoke up and he said, Lord, whom would we go? You have the words of life. What a friend. Yes, Jesus is willing to pay the religious and social cost of the interaction. And when his friends come back, they say, why are you talking to him? And why are you talking to her? They were virtual strangers. But let's go back to John chapter 4. I don't want to paraphrase too much of it. John chapter 4. He's told her that he could give her living water and she wants it. Verse 13. Verse 15. Sir, give me this water so that I won't be thirsty or come all the way here to draw. And he said to her, go call your husband and come here. Now that created a real problem. But I want you to know, anybody listening to me right now or any other of the sermons and the testimonies that follow, the same problem is going to come up over and over again. 
because this Jesus who comes full of grace is now going to bring her closer to him so she can de- he can deal with her truth. It's a truth that needs to be different. Unfortunately, it's a reality. And he's going to give her a chance to decide. He's going to let her make a decision. And everybody that listens over the next eight days is going to have to make a decision too. Jesus respects your right to choose. The conversation can end at any time. And there are at least three places in this narrative where the conversation under different circumstances might have ended. But the love of God was all through the tones and the body posture and the body language. It was in the words. It was in his heart. That's why he wasn't a bigoted Samaritan-hating Jew. He was a true son of God. And that's what we must be. And the woman knew it. And the Spirit of Christ was operative. And she decided to make a decision to keep the conversation going. Listen, friends. No place should sequester to you where the conversation can't be held. And nobody should enter into the conversation without genuine prayer, love, and humility, patience, and the method of Christ. But we must be engaging on behalf of Christ, and everyone gets the chance to choose. She decides to keep going. I have no husband, and Jesus said, I know. Now the prophet is bringing her bones out of the closet and she could slam the door and say you have no right to talk to me about this he actually does and he's risking something to do it you've had five husbands and the one whom you have is not your husband you've been honest about this Jesus said and she says let's talk about something else it's pretty painful these sexual sins of ours they're pretty painful It's not like we post them on Facebook and tweet about them and Instagram the storylines. We don't really want to bring them back up because there is a measure of shame. Jeremiah 6.15 and Jeremiah 8.12, almost a verbatim repetition, says that God's people near the final hour of their judgment with Babylon don't even know how to blush. But for some people, they've blushed so many times, their heart's just gone flat. Nobody cares. They've been stepped on, kicked to the curb, chewed up, and spit out. And some of us have no sense of what that feels like because we come from well-to-do families with mom and dads that love each other. Oh, we got to do a lot of soul-searching, friends. But Jesus is willing to pay those costs. And the conversation goes a little farther. When it gets down to the point of talking about the place of worship, she reminds him, they worshiped here. And Jesus says, woman, verse 21, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem where you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. Now there's a conversation stopper. You don't talk about religion and politics, especially with a woman who thinks she might be a bigoted male Israelite. Jesus will go farther than that. He was too much her friend to let her remain in sin, and she knew he was her friend. And when Jesus said, the Samaritans are confused, he said the Jews at least know what the worship system's supposed to sort of be like. 
They didn't have it all together for sure, just like the 12 men who were in the Samaritan village of Sychar looking for something to eat and probably were fearful that shadows of Samaritans would fall on them. Verse 28, 23, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. Such the people of the Father seek to be as worshipers. God is spirit and that's what's missing in so many relationships because real love takes some risk just like Jesus does. And real love is willing to be inconvenienced and misunderstood just like Jesus was. And real love scores a connection where formal religion and value statements can't do anything. Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And nobody can change this. But everybody ought to try to love like Jesus loved. The woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ, the one that comes. And Jesus said, that is me. Now the most amazing thing happens. You need to know something. If Jesus is going to dig the bones out of your closet, if the prophet's going to take the bones out of the closet, something about the bad news has to become the good news before it's good news. And the good news is that Jesus, right from the very beginning, was intentionally seeking her. He knew everything about her. And he was going to have an encounter where she had a chance to have a different identity. And when Jesus takes the bad news that is ruining her life and connects it to his person, his love, the love of God, that's the good news that she could have her dignity restored and be right with God and respected by her fellow man. She not only becomes a fountain, she becomes a rushing river and she flows back into town, gets all of the men's attention and she becomes a fountain and it all happened a lot faster than anybody might have ever thought it could. The people that she once feared and wounded her are now the people she goes to save because more than a light came on, a heart became clean and it started beating with something that hadn't reverberated in her chest in an awful long time. She could be free and clean to love like she loved before those actions that started her down this trashy, cheap, worthless road. Listen, friends. The love of God is so amazing that it will comfort you as it deepens conviction and it will set you free with a new identity in Christ. You are no longer what you were even though you sinned against your own mind and body. You are now loved by God and should be loved by His people. Your new identity in Christ is not just an identity, it's an experience that turns you into somebody who can touch and turn on the fountain of love, life, and cleansing and other people people's lives. Jesus Christ is the one who alone can do it. It is not a false grace. It is not an indulgent religious system that says we've been wrong for 6,000 years and now we're right. It's not that simple. Inside the church there have always been loving and lovable Christians and there have always been shallow, superficial, and also going beyond that hypocritical people. But this morning at the beginning of this journey about being loved and mattering and belonged, belonging to God, being made right with God, being loved by God, 
is not only the most therapeutic and healing encounter that any human being can be, no person should be held back from it by the cold, lifeless, Laodicean experience of a Ten Commandment touting, Fourth Commandment emphasizing Seventh-day Adventist Christian, nor should they be held back by it from a false grace sequestering decision by the new era of the compassionates that keeps people from having a right to know the truth in the context of love and make a decision. God is before us today confronting every casual, careless Christian who has been quick to gossip and criticize and complain against those people. But I want to tell you whether it's heterosexual, homosexual, transgender, whether it's teenage fornication or pornography addiction, and by the way, I said it in the first service and I'll say it here, 70% of Young men ages 17 to 35 are addicted to pornography. And how many of you with children like me, a 21-year-old daughter, wants to bring that boy to stand by her at the altar? Listen, friends, this is serious business. Nobody's off the hook. God's calling all of us. We might need to do a little smashing of the monitors. We might need to do some mass placement of flip phone purchasing. We might need to draw some new accountability lines. We might need to have a little more accountability software installed. We might have to have a few awkward, embarrassing conversations at the end of this sermon. But I want to tell you something. When you come to Jesus, He has the power to give you the identity. He has the power for your identity to be how He sees you, not how you see yourself or think other people see you. This is a God who can burst the bounds of our own self-projecting condemnation or self-righteousness projecting the unrighteousness of others who are daring to say there's still moral right and wrong in this world. Friends, There is no truth without grace, and there is no grace without truth. And let us go forward over these next eight days rejoicing in a God who comes full of grace and wisely bringing the truth in its liberating power to all who will hear. May God help us all to hear. Amen and amen.